This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, episode number 18. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Before I get into the intro, I want to remind you to follow the show on Instagram at instagram.com slash wetflyswing and on Twitter at twitter.com slash wetflyswing. This will help you stay connected to new updates and changes and will help us reach a few more people. In today's episode, I interview the one-man publishing powerhouse Tom Perro, who is behind Wild River Press and who was the lead in putting together the great book, A Passion for Steelhead. Tom clarifies a little misnomer about the connection between Atlantic salmon flies and steelhead flies, talks about the person who created the present name for foam waking fly, and shares an amazing story about Edward and the history of the intruder pattern. This is the real deal this week. Don't miss the show as Tom describes how he became the youngest editor of TU's Trout Magazine. This took some serious, serious audacity on his part, and it's a pretty good story. So, without further ado, here's Tom Perro from Wild River Press. How's it going, Tom? Hi, Dave. Good to be with you. Good. Good to, good to have you on here. Um, yeah, I wanted to jump into uh, a bunch of topics on relating to steelhead and some history of, we talked a little bit about, you know, getting into the evolution of, uh, you know, flies and steelhead flies and things like that. So, got a bunch of uh, big topics here. So, we like normal, we probably won't get through everything, but I just want to jump into it and, and get started. Does that sound good with you? Sure. Shoot away. All right. Um, so, I usually start off with uh, just getting to know a little bit of your history and fly fishing and, you know, your connection to Steelhead and how you got into where you are now with Wild River Press. And I know you had a number of other projects over the years, including a Steelhead magazine. I mean, maybe you can just tell us how you got started in it all and then how you got to where you are now. Oh, I, I, I started on a uh, standing on a stump in a little pond in Massachusetts when I was five years old watching a little red red and white float um, beneath which there was a, a worm dangling and got bored with it. And my father told me that damn kid will never be a fisherman. <laughs> nice. I uh, became interested in fly fishing um, when I was a teenager uh, in New England where I grew up. Um, fished uh, for panfish, bass, pickerel in ponds and streams around home, uh, some stock trout. Um, and then, uh, when I got into my twenties and had a car and became more ambitious and read outdoor books and magazines, I drove to Eastern Canada and became infatuated with Atlantic salmon. So my anadromous fishing, uh, started on the rivers of the Gaspé Peninsula um, where I camped out and bought a daily ticket, and which was cheap at the time, and uh, f- learned how to fish for salmon that way. I moved to the West Coast in 1984. I moved to Oregon and uh, stuck myself in Bend, halfway between the Lower Deschutes and the North Umpqua, hmm. and proceeded to learn about steelhead that way. Nice. And uh, I've been in publications all my life. I've edited fishing magazines. I was the editor of Trout Magazine with Trout Unlimited for 16 years. And as you said, I started a magazine called Wild Steelhead and Atlantic Salmon. Um, 
and uh, which morphed into Fish and Fly. And for the past dozen or so years, I've uh, published fishing and honey books. Oh, cool. Cool. And and one of the latest books that uh, you've published is the uh, Tying Steelhead Flies with, uh, with Style. Um, yes, we actually have four fly tying books out. It's kind of full circle. I first two books I published um, back in 2005 when I started Wild River Press were uh, trout fly books, uh, one by Mike Mercer and uh, in California and Scott Sanchez in Wyoming, both uh, very accomplished and well-known trout fly designers. And recently, uh, over the last year or so, we've come out with a, a set of three books on saltwater flies um, by a young man named Drew Chacon out of Florida. Um, that's sort of a trilogy of permit bonefish and tarpon. That's called Top Saltwater Flies. And then within the last month or so, we released uh, a book called, the book you mentioned, uh, Tying Steelhead Flies with Style by Deck Hogan and Marty Howard. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, and I had a chance uh, to take a look at that book. You sent me a copy, and um, yeah, it's definitely, um, I've got a few steelhead books on my shelf, and and it's a pretty uh, detailed, I was mentioning this earlier, but um, yeah, I love how, the, you know, the, the close-up shots, it definitely it has a, a different style than a lot of the steelhead books, so it's um, I'm definitely looking forward to digging into it more. So Yeah, and the digital photography has made all the difference in the world. Um, I have literally hundreds of fly fishing tying books um dating back oh gosh since i was a kid close to 50 years and uh within the last decade or so the caliber of close-up photography is just so remarkable uh that uh i occasionally pick up some of the older black and white Mm -hmm. books or magazines from decades past and it, it it it's almost uh, beyond belief that we looked at those back then. And hmm. I, I and my friends looked at those and, and thought the photos were pretty good because they yeah. <laughs> compared to now. And yeah, yeah both, both uh, deck and Marty are really expert photographers and they just did a superb job with those close up step-by-step images in their book. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. That's a, uh... Definitely some good stuff. Well, maybe we can just jump into, you know, one of the topics here, you know, on top of all the, you know, getting more into what you've done with your, in your career. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about the evolution of Atlantic salmon flies and steelhead flies. And maybe you can just go into, dig into that a little bit, how, how we got to where we are from, you know, I've had a number of guests on here that have talked about some of the history, but uh, they haven't, we haven't gotten that deep into the whole connection with Atlantic salmon. Right. Yeah. Well, it, 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 I mean, we could we could spend yeah. hours just talking about that, and 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 don't worry, I, I won't. But um, there there is a fascinating connection um, that isn't quite what a lot of people think it is. Um, steelhead fly fishing um, developed here on the west coast of North America um, quite on its own. Um, it. it uh, Part of the myth that somehow has developed in recent decades is that steelhead flies were modeled after Atlantic salmon flies, and that really isn't true. Um, a lot of that sort of cross uh, 
uh, pollination has come in recent years. But initially, uh, steelhead flies um, uh, here on the West Coast were basically uh, gussied up trout flies. Uh, there's, there's a very good history of all that in Trey Combs's original book, um, Steelhead Flies and Fly Fishing, that was published by Amato in, I think, mm-hmm. 1976. Very good history toward the back of the book about the flies and everything else. And um, uh, he had some snapshots in there, black and white snapshots of the old, the actual old flies 100 and more years ago. And clearly they were, they were trout flies. Hmm. Um, and the, uh, um, I know one of the, one of the points that, uh, Hogan and Howard make in their new book, uh, is that if you took, um, a, uh, a plate, a, a, a photograph of a bunch of steelhead flies from 40, 50 years ago, um, and, uh, looked at it in black and white, the flies all look identical. Hmm. And what they mean by that is the construction is almost identical. Um, for instance, if you look at McLean's standard fishing encyclopedia published in the mid sixties, uh, Polly Roseboro, um, Oregonian, uh, well-known fly tire at the time tied all the steelhead flies and he tied in the, in the Klamath river style, uh, which had the wings kind of riding high, and all the flies look look identical except for the d- differences in color. Um, the steelhead flies that were developed uh, where I live now in the Puget Sound area um, during the, uh, say, the 30s, 40s, and, and 50s were somewhat similar, uh, but the wings were uh, rode closer to the to the uh, typically a chenille body. And I'm thinking, of course, of a fly like the uh, Skycomish Sunrise yeah. um, invented by the late George McLeod. Um, and it really, um, it really wasn't until um, the 1980s, um, 70s maybe, when some Atlantic salmon flies started making their way to the West Coast. And interestingly enough, from what I can determine and in my experience, those early flies were actually uh, bombers. They were they were clipped deer hair flies that came out of the Miramichi in the Gaspé Peninsula, and anglers started using them on um, on the uh, Clearwater River hmm. in Idaho. Mm-hmm. And also uh, on, on some of the uh, British Columbia rivers, notably the, the Bulkley, there was a, a character named Colin Shadrach who was an early outfitter guide on the Bulkley. And he had a clip deer hair, very crude clip deer hair fly called the Bulkley Mouse. Mm-hmm. Some, some of your listeners will probably remember that. Um, and But as far as wet flies are concerned and the influence of Atlantic salmon fly tying, that really didn't come until comparatively recently. Uh, that didn't come until um, steelhead anglers started going to the East Coast or even Europe, Russia in particular, when those rivers opened up, um, and bringing home tube flies and uh, and other uh, uh, different style mm-hmm. wet flies. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the same token, Atlantic salmon um, anglers coming here to the West Coast, as I did, I actually moved here. But I remember hosting friends uh, from the East Coast who would come out and 
in the uh, late summer, early fall, and we'd fish the Deschutes, for example, or the, the Umpqua. Um, and that's the way a, a lot of Atlantic salmon flies got here. At the same time, there was this uh, uh, kind of um, uh, renaissance uh, uh, or, or, or uh, um, uh, spontaneous interest here in the Northwest uh, among steelhead fly tires um, in Atlanta, in the old Atlantic salmon flies, notably uh, the the style of flies that were originated in Scotland on the the River Spey and Dee, uh, mm-hmm. and of course the the late uh, Sid Glasso over in Forks, Washington, on the Solduck, he was one of the original, probably the original pioneer using those flowing hackles to create that style of fly, and he was tying those way back in the 1940s and 50s, long, long before. Mm-hmm. Um, any of these modern things were in, were invented. Um, so that's ver- gotcha. ver- as briefly as I can. That's kind of a quick yeah. uh, a quick overview. I will say two other things about steelhead fly design. Um, the uh, um, in my experience uh, um, being here now for um, for all these years, uh, the two most original. Um, steelhead fly tires that i've met and whose flies have had in my judgment um the most original effect on the direction of steelhead fly design are um peter Sovereil, retired uh, u.s navy captain mm-hmm. from edmonds washington who's by the way right up on the, he's up on the skeena system right now fishing for uh spring run steelhead he took uh, uh, strips of foam that were used in tying uh, uh, terrestrial flies for trout. And he, this is going back 30 years, and he, he pulled them up over the back of a deer hair body and created what he at the time called a foamer. Hmm. Um, there are now dozens of flies like this, uh, little skating flies, yep. uh, practically every serious steel header every guide has his own version of that pete is the one who originated that hmm. secondly a guy named ed ward originally from michigan and i think living back in michigan now who guided on the skagit for a number of years in the 1990s and early 2000s uh he and um a, a, an angler named jerry french uh concocted a highly unusual and original uh fly called the intruder and again there are any number of iterations of that now and tied by various fly companies and individuals um those two flies are the most original departures i think i've seen and they're really right up there in my judgment uh with uh the uh departure that occurred more than 100 years ago from classic atlantic salmon strip wings to the d and space style flies i would put Ward's intruder in that category. I think historically it's going to rank uh, as a similar revolutionary and evolutionary departure. And then Sarvel's foamer, um, um, in my opinion, is is every bit as important as the bomber or any of these uh, variations of muddlers such as Bill McMillan's steelhead caddis and mm-hmm. any number of things like that, which essentially are uh, derivations of, uh, uh, 
of a muddler um, or the the bomber, which is a full clip deer hair body, as as you know. Yeah, yeah, no, that's an awesome uh, little history lesson there. That definitely, I had that question I wanted to ask you about um, Edwards. You know, the whole intruder history there. So that that's really great. Uh, you know, for clarifying. I, rem- that. I remember I, when I had Fish and Fly magazine. I remember uh, one day driving up uh, to. Uh, um, the, uh, the Arlington area, uh, where, uh, Ward, um, was living in a converted garage belonging to a gentleman named Marlo Bumpus. How could you possibly forget uh-huh. the name? And, uh, I remember pulling in there and there was Ed's drift boat and he's in there, uh, uh, watching his national geographic specials and, uh, <laughs> very creative mind. Uh, he, uh, I, I, I interviewed him for Fish and Fly about oh, the intro, cool. and, I, and I asked him, this was early on uh, when it was kind of a secret uh, secret deal, and, um, you know, there's all this mythology built up around Ed's secret techniques, et cetera, and mm-hmm. Hogan and Howard go into that in, in some detail in, in their book, which is the stories about Edward's early efforts are, are quite amusing, hmm. but... Um, uh, I asked Ed, you know, what, what was he trying to do with this fly? And he's, he basically said that he, he was just watching these National Geographic nature specials and, uh, and was looking at critters, uh, the way he put it to me, as I recall, <laughs> um, you know, sh- uh, various uh, shrimp and, um, mm-hmm. and, and different crustacea. Uh, and he really wasn't trying to imitate anything in particular. Um, it was only um, a number of years after that when I was actually doing research for the Steelhead Life Cycle chapter of Deck Hogan's first book, A Passion for Steelhead, mm-hmm. um, that I, uh, in interviewing uh, 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 biologists and doing research myself, I discovered that contrary again to popular belief that steel had fed on prawns, they don't because the prawns are hundreds of feet deep, hmm. you know, uh, uh, spotted shrimp, whatever you want to call them. And Puget Sound, for instance, are off the coast. The steelhead never get down there. They're, hmm. they're steelhead are surface feeders, even out in the ocean. They don't, yep. they rarely go beneath a hundred feet deep, even when they're out in the middle of the Pacific ocean. And, um, one of the things that that uh, that um, that I discovered, uh, educated myself about, was the fact that um, that their that one of their principal uh, food items out in the ocean, out in the Pacific, um, are small squid, um, notably a uh, a species called armhook or commander squid, which are typically six inches, eight inches. Um, maybe 10 inches um, long, um, they rise up from great depths, um, a thousand feet deep um, <laughs> at dusk um, or in low light conditions. And the squid do, and in, gr- in large quantities, vast uh, quantities, uh, feed on the surface. Uh, and guess what chases them? Hmm. Everything from whales to seabirds and, yes, steelhead. Um, and one of the things I discovered was that their behavior uh, is such that 
everything made sense about how we fish our flies. Um, uh, these squid, these relatively small squid, when they are alarmed, when something's chasing them, a predator is chasing them, um, they have these little sort of jet propulsion mm -hmm. engines um, built in, and they spurt away. They yep. race away across the surface, and guess what else? They turn colors. They mm -hmm. turn all these electric um, iridescent colors. What does that sound like? <laughs> yep. That's it sounds like a fly moving across the current. Mm -hmm. And what about the color? Why do you think initially all these winter steelhead flies, uh, the Skycomish Sunrise, uh, Babine Special, yeah. uh, anglers very quickly and, and gear anglers as well with the with the hot shots and and uh, and so on, corkies. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't take anglers very long to figure out that steel had are attracted to bright colors. Well, there's the answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that's a cool, cool way to break down that whole that whole process. There's definitely there, we always talk a little bit on the show about flies. You know, it's it's kind of an interesting one because you know the the talk is that it is fun to get into flies and hear the history, but at the end of the day, you know, I think you know getting that fly in front of the fish is probably the most important thing you know, for sure. But, uh, you know, I mean, when I think of the intruder, that is what it's doing. I mean, it's slowing down and stopping and, and pulsing and, you know, flaring. And it's just like, yeah, it's, it, it was pretty amazing. Ed and the guys, when they did that, it's, it's a real, and cool. think of the silhouette, think of the yeah, silhouette of, of that, that, uh, similar to the, the, the so-called leeches that we used to use on the umpo yep. in, in the mid to late, late eighties at first, uh, marabou uh, oh, yeah. tandem flies and then and then we switch to rabbit strip but you think about the length of those flies and you think about the uh the articulation of that particular fly and then of course of uh the intruder and 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 various uh offshoots from that uh there's no doubt in my mind that that it it, it that those flies both in silhouette um, uh, and in, in general action are, um, if not directly imitate at imitating, at least highly suggesting, uh, those commander squid out in the middle hmm. of the Pacific ocean. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. So I want to get a little more into, get back into hearing about, uh, you know, your company there and some of the publishing. But, uh, before I do, I just wanted to make a note that, you know, we've talked about a lot of links here, books and things like that. And just want everybody to know, um, we can find all these links. I'll put these in the show notes at wetflyswing.com slash, uh, 18. That's the numbers one eight. So I'll have everything that we're talking about here. If people want to, you know, take a look at these books and some of the flies and things like that, um, they can check that out. But, uh, yeah. So, so maybe you can bring us back to, you know, just again, back to, we're talking about wild river press as far as the process, you know, I know earlier we were talking a little bit about, you know, uh, some other publishers out there and how, how they do things. Maybe you could break down how, how you do it and how you bring your, you know, people along and you, you come out with such a, I mean, the, the last book we talked about is really great. And passion for steel is another one, which was a, a classic book. How does it all come together? Well, essentially, I'm a, a one-man custom publishing operation. Um, I, I, uh, I have uh, trusted colleagues, uh, most uh, prominent of whom is a, 
good friend uh, and professional associate named Greg Smith, who, by the way, is also an Oregonian. He lives in Clackamas, and Greg and I have worked together for many, many years. He designed magazines for me, and then when I uh, moved into book publishing, uh, has been uh, really my right-hand man in making the books look as beautiful as they look. Um, but briefly, uh, big publishing houses typically um, go about acquiring their uh, their manuscripts, as it's called in the book trade, in one of two ways. One is they uh, sit back and and wait for the manuscripts to roll in, and they and they get hundreds and thousands of them monthly. Um, or uh, they have so-called acquisition editors uh, who are typically famous people. Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, for instance, mm. was, a, was an acquisitions editor who um, signed up Michael Jackson to write his, <laughs> his uh, autobiography. Yeah. So that's typically how big publishers get their books. So they sign up politicians or, or what have you, and somebody ghostwrites it for them. Um, uh, I don't have the luxury or the resources to do anything remotely like that. So basically what I've done over the years is I've located individuals who know a lot about a particular subject, whether it's steelhead fishing or in the case of, say, Andy Mill, expert tarpon fishing fishermen in Florida or turkey hunters. I'm just finishing up my second volume called Turkey Men about individuals across the United States who have shot 49 uh, shot turkeys in all 49 States where they live. Hmm. Uh, I've typically gone after the experts in these fields, expert anglers, expert hunters, and then worked with them over a period of months or even years in some cases to create the books. So, Typically, nobody shows up on my doorstep and says, here you go, Tom, here's a manuscript, here are the photos, you know, right. do your magic and make a great looking book for me. I wish they did. It would save me a lot of work. But typically, um, I work with them and in some cases uh, actually uh, become their writing coach because not all fishers and hunters are necessarily bookworms or book readers and uh but they all have good stories they all have good narratives right uh at least i've always believed that and so i've seen my job as uh coaxing those stories out of them and helping them present them uh with interesting uh, dialogue uh and uh, uh in, a, in a way that that average readers will find uh, engaging and captivating. And they're putting it all together with uh, beautiful photos and, uh, and as I said, uh, having uh, um, a wonderfully talented individual and Greg Smith to put it all together in the, in the, in the graphic design, as we call it, the layout. So uh, there's a lot to it. And uh, a, um, um, if we can do, if we can create one of these books in six months, that's, that's hmm. swift. Yep. Um, it, several of the books, uh, that, that we've mentioned here that you've mentioned and I've mentioned, um, took a number of years to create. Um, and I like to think anyway, that's why they're exceptional. Uh, that's why uh, people keep coming back to them and, and buying them. And I hope we'll be around and, and have made some, sort of contribution to the literature of our sport. 
Nice. Nice. Yeah. I was, uh, I was just thinking about a, uh, you know, interview I had in episode 16 with John Shuey and, you know, and he was talking about his, his process and, you know, how he goes through and trying to get a, uh, you know, he, he tries to get about a book out, you know, every year doesn't always meet those, that goal, but, uh, yeah, it's always interesting to hear, you know, and the differences between putting the books together in the magazine, I mean, you've had some magazine experience as well. What is, has there, is there a big difference there in, in being involved in those, you know, the two different medias? Um, uh, the, the books are a bigger headache. (laughs) I, I went went into them thinking that they'd be, um, uh, perhaps easier because I, I thought to myself, uh, that I'd be rid once and for all of having to chase advertising because ultimately that's what fuels a magazine, especially small circulation magazines that, that fly fishing, uh, has, um, by definition, there's small circulation. Um, and the, and I figured, well, I'd be rid of having to chase advertising. I could focus totally on the creative, um, side of things and, and helping people produce beautiful books that they'd be proud of. And well, that sort of was true, but then uh, as with all things in life, you run into egos and personalities and, uh, uh, wives and ex-wives and all the stuff that one might think, what does that have to do with book publishing? It has everything to do with book publishing because, um, you, 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 I, I find myself, uh, as, as I said, uh, uh, writing coach, um, in a couple of cases, marriage counselor. Yeah. Um, yeah, just <laughs> that was awesome. Well, that's what that's what John was telling me about. His he mentioned that you know sometimes he gets some uh, some documents in there that aren't quite you know that great as far as quality, and he's got to do his best as an editor to to make them you know <laughs> worthy of reading. So that yeah. I guess that's one challenge right there. Just on we, we do we do a lot of rewriting, yeah. and that and that's sort of the hidden the yep. hidden influence and the hidden hand. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we do, we do a lot of that and he's, he's a real pro. So he know he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe we can go a little bit more in. I know, um, this was kind of, you know, like you said, you're talking, you know, all the, the stuff that comes up and working with your, you know, your, your wife's mother and stuff like that or whatever. But, uh, with tying steelhead flies with the style, you know, I know on the whole social media thing, there was a thing that popped out there and I can't remember where it came from, but it was something like, you know, don't buy this book or some, some, you know, political, I don't know what it was exactly, but maybe you can explain the, um, what that was all about. And you mean, you mean on social malaria? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Social media. Exactly. <laughs> that That's well, that's one of the things I mean, it's interesting talking to you and I love talking to the, you know, in the, however you want to call it, the real media or the old, older media, because nowadays, right. Anybody can go out there and just throw something out there on social and it can be shared a million times. Well, all of a sudden that's yeah, truth. That, that, that may be true, but nobody can produce the books that, that we produce or that, that, other uh, competent professionals produce. And no. I think that's that's the difference. The yeah, yeah the the brief, the brief story with uh, with tying uh, in, in, uh, the book tying steelhead flies with style by Hogan and Howard is that they actually started this book. Oh, I want to say six, seven, maybe even eight years ago. Hmm. Um, Deck uh, was at my house as a as a dinner guest. And this is just a couple of years after his first book came out and pulled out a laptop 
computer. Uh, this is before I even had a laptop computer. <laughs> and so I was impressed that he was carrying this all around. And he showed me these spectacular close-ups of, um, of, uh, of flies being tied, the sequences of, uh, sequences of steelhead flies being tied. And um, I asked him where he got these, and he said it was his brother-in-law, Marty Howard, uh, who, had, uh, uh, who had taken them. And we talked briefly at that time about a book um, that they were hoping to do, planning to do. And um, on a couple of occasions uh, when Deck and I have been communicating, because he's a longtime author of ours, and we send him royalty checks every six months, and so we're, we're in touch. Uh, a couple of occasions over the years, I've, I asked him how that was going and really didn't get much of an answer. And then last year, just about this time, the spring of 2017, I uh, thought about it and I was in the middle of Drew Chacon's saltwater fly tying series and uh, thought, you know, maybe this would be a, a, a nice bookend to that series, uh, the Steelhead Fly book. So I called Deck and had a chat with him about it and, and uh, basically uh, uh, discovered that the project had been shelved, that they uh, – uh, I, I don't feel I can speak for him, nor mm -hmm. would I. But basically I got the impression that they had had some kind of disagreement or series of disagreements, he and, and Marty – uh, about how the book was going to take shape or who was going to publish it or whatever. I don't know the particulars, right. but in any case, nothing had happened on it in a, a number of years. And so uh, long story short, I um, talked with them on a couple of occasions last spring, and we we revived the project and got it rolling. And um, over a period of six months, uh, the four of us, and in, in, in particular – um, Marty, who was a retired police officer, and um, Greg Smith, our graphic designer um, in uh, in Clackamas, um, and me operating from my my office here in the Seattle area. Mm. The three of us pr primarily worked um, almost straight out for about five or six months uh, last summer and fall, pulling it together. Deck uh, has two jobs, as I I understand it, so. His participation was a little less than uh, than perhaps he would have liked, but he. Hmm. But Marty was the was the main impetus. That that book, I think it's fair to say, uh, is primarily his baby, and gotcha. there his photos and and etc. But anyway, we worked diligently um, and um, creatively together um, on producing the book that you have in your hands mm -hmm. and we're, we're proud of it. We, we did, uh, our, our usual, uh, first class job, I think anyway, had it printed in the United States by a new printer that we started using about a year ago. So it was printed in, in Tennessee, um, using a very sophisticated binding process called ring O binding, which allows the oh, yeah. whole book to lie flat, as you notice. Yep. So it's a little bit unorthodox, but it has a high function because mm -hmm. when you're, when it's sitting there on your fly tying desk or, uh, you can open it up and you don't have to, yep. you know, st stick a shoe on top of it or whatever to keep the pages <laughs> open. Um, so, uh, so that's the basic, uh, story behind the creation of the book. It, the process was very similar to what I described with our other fishing books. 
Um, uh, Deck and Marty did not have a book. Um, we helped them create it. Um, they uh, did a, and in particular, Marty did a magnificent job with the step-by-step photography and in, in carrying out uh, uh, Greg Smith's um, art direction of the close-up feather photography and all those nice touches that give our books you know, that extra panache. Um, and, uh, we met our deadline as our agreement, uh, with, uh, Hogan and Howard stipulated. We, we met our agreement with two weeks to spare, uh, and the book debuted at the, uh, the, the, uh, um, Oregon, uh, mm. f- uh fly tying expo in, in Albany in, oh. in early March. Um, the, the unfortunate aspect that you, alluded to is that the day the book was published um in late february first couple days of of march um i was rudely awakened by um as you say social media um uh, with a deluge of um angry voices posted online um that uh had been stirred up uh, ironically by Deck and Marty themselves. Um, and I'm not going to go into all the particulars of what, why they were upset. Um, we'll, I'll just say that I think they boiled down to disagreements over how their book was going to be sold and distributed. Hmm. Uh, I think primarily that's it. I think all the, gotcha. all, all the material, uh, uh, corroborates that. Um, and uh, it, it got downright ugly to the point where I was physically threatened. Um, and uh, I'd never, in 45 years huh. of being involved in publications, magazines, and books, I'd never experienced uh, um, uh, such vile behavior, language, vitriol. I mean, for God's sake, we're wow. talking a fishing book here. Yeah, the, from so this is just from random people out there. You were threatening random people. People I uh, I I heard from individuals uh, whom I know, um, and uh, um, many of them were dismayed at my silence. They they people reached out to me and said, "Tom, what on earth is going on here? This is just this is crazy stuff." Mm-hmm. And so I I. Um, laid low for a week or so, hoping it would blow over. Sure. But this, this uh, social media stuff is just downright nasty. And uh, you know, anybody, as you said, with uh, you know yep. half a, half a thought can mm-hmm. throw things up there, and with no um, nobody there to referee it or to t- you know nope. indicate whether it's true or untrue or or whatever. And Mm. so I suddenly found myself, myself, you know, uh, uh, confronting this, uh, swamp of alligators and, uh, with a lot of pretty nasty things being said about me and my company and and everything else. So I, I basically was forced into responding and I did so with, uh, a, uh, a factual white paper. Um, anybody who wants to read it, um, can go to our Facebook page, uh, Wild River Press, and uh, there's a link to the white paper. And you, to your heart's content, you can get into the weeds and read about the whole history of the of the producing this book and see dozens of emails between 
uh, Wild River Press and the two authors and mm. and all that. Gotcha. Um, uh, but uh, I, I wish to emphatically state that that both um, Hogan and Howard did a very good job for us. It's a fine book. Uh, we're getting an, a very interesting level of uh, our, our level of, of interest from Europe. And I think this huh. kind of goes back to what we did, you and I discussed a few minutes ago about this whole um, this whole Atlantic salmon steelhead fly uh, cross pollination. Uh, there are, you know, we're, we're grabbing their tube flies and using them. Yep. They're looking to 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 people like Marty Howard and what Marty has done with a with a modern steelhead flies. Uh, taking drawing on the Atlantic salmon tradition, but creating uh, sleek, beautiful uh, designs. People in Norway, Denmark, um, Germany, Italy. Uh, we've sold this book to all those places, and they're definitely pay atten- paying attention. So it's quite interesting. It's 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 too bad we don't have the fish that we used yeah. to have. But yeah. the people are the people are interested all across the world. They know what steelhead is. They know what a skagit yep. line is. <laughs> no, I know, I know. I talk to people from all around as well. That's and I think that's one of the cool things about the social media and that thing is that yeah, you can connect with people all around the world much easier now. So if you like doing that, that's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, that no, that's good. I uh, I understand you know how all that stuff goes down. So I'm, I just want to get your take on it, and I and I hope to have Deck. Uh, he he mentioned that he was going to come on the show eventually too. So we'll, we'll you know talk more about any of the details there. Um, so yeah, so you know as far as we've talked a little bit, you mentioned uh, a few big names, people from your past. Do you have a couple maybe uh, mentors that that really helped you get to where you are in your career and life and fly fishing? Oh. Um... I don't know about um, about specific uh, mentors. Well, you, um, mentioned, you mentioned uh, McLeod. That's uh, not necessarily. Yeah. Well, a... no. I, I just met I met George when I was working with Sean Gallagher on his two volume Wild Steel headset. I wouldn't even r- remotely uh, claim to to ha- have known um, mm. George in uh, in in his prime, uh, really. But right. Um, I, I would say that, um, um, oh, just sort of several people I've, uh, looked up to and admired, one of whom I never met actually, um, this is probably a good person to start with and to mention, um, Joe Brooks, um, Brooks, uh, died in, of a heart attack while fishing, uh, Nelson Spring Creek in Montana in the fall of 1972, hmm. I had just graduated from high school a few months before then. I was into fishing and avidly read his column in Outdoor Life, his fishing column every month, read his books. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and he, he in that way, um, through publications, and maybe this is one of the things that drew me to publications, um, he, uh, he inspired me. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, just a little over a year ago, I was I'll put a little commercial plug in here. I was yeah. um, hired by his great nephews um, to um, do a historical uh, do historical research on their their late uh, great uncle. Um, 
Um, and I wrote a, uh, a long timeline of his life, fascinating life. He was an alcoholic and mm. during the depression, dragged himself out of that, uh, helped invent the American sportsman TV series. Um, quite extraordinary individual. I learned a lot of things that I didn't know about him. And that timeline is being used to make a documentary film about Joe Brooks. Mm. That film is scheduled to come out later this year. So I was, you know, I was one of those things in life. I was very pleased to come full circle. And even though I never met the man, um, uh, he was a, a legendary fly fisher. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I was very happy to, to do that. Uh, as far as people I have known and have met in my career editing the various magazines I have, I pretty much come in contact with just about everybody you can name. Mm-hmm. Um um, and some of them were, some of them were characters. Some of them were delightful people. Some of them were very difficult people, <laughs> but I just, I tick off a few, um, names. Uh, I, uh, uh, I, I was friends with and admired Lee Wolf, um, uh, a real keen intellect, uh, very creative, um, and so I was pleased to know him and to go on some fishing trips with him. Um, Robert Benke, um, Dr. Robert Benke passed away just a few years ago. The average angler may not know who he is, but those of you who read Trout Magazine under my editorship will remember his column called About Trout. And uh, Benke was this really eccentric fisheries biologist, a brilliant mind. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, who uh, taught fisheries at uh, at uh, Colorado State University yeah. in Fort Collins, and uh, I, I was, it was one of the highlights of my j- career as a journalist was being able to was being able to um, arrange that marriage of science uh, with the popular press. So uh, you know, at the time uh, when I became editor of Trout Magazine. I was quite young in the, in the late 70s. And it, it was funny because the average trout angler, even serious trout angler, knew more about the, the sex lives of mayflies than he knew <laughs> about the sex lives of wild trout. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm not being completely facetious when I say that. They, they could reel off the scientific names of, of uh, you know, the mayflies hatching on the Osable River in June but they didn't know that a greenback cutthroat trout was native to, <laughs> you know, the, the front range of, of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. And one of the things that, that I think we successfully did with Banky's contribution, ongoing contribution to the magazine, I think we educated anglers, um, uh, th- those who wanted to be educated anyway and wanted to be better informed. I think we, we let them know what a, what a rich um, legacy – uh, um, North America has of, uh, of, of all the various trout, salmon and, uh, and char species. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I talked to a lot of people through a Facebook group and yeah, it's amazing. You know, you think about, well, not only trout, but other species now too. I mean, there's so much going on in, out there, but that, no, that's really cool. The editor of Trout Magazine, I mean that, how did you, you know, so early in your life, get to that connection. Maybe you can talk I'll about let, two things, how you got there and then how. Um, I'll answer yeah. that, but I, I would be remiss in not mentioning um, uh, 
another individual oh, yeah. Yeah, for who sure. is is still very much alive in in, in casting and uh, I haven't um, spoken with him in a number of years, but Dave Whitlock. Mm, yeah. uh, Dave also contributed to uh, Trout Magazine, wrote a Fly Tires notebook for me, uh, a, 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 a dear gentleman, uh, and one of the great creative Fly Tires of the 1960s uh, and, and 70s. Um, he uh, influenced me, and I... Uh, to this day, greatly ad- admire him. Um, as to how I got the job with Trout Magazine, mm-hmm. <laughs> actually, is a pretty funny little little story. I um, it, I was I was the youngest president in the history, the youngest chapter president in the history of the organization. Tu, I started my own oh, chapter cool. in Massachusetts when I was eighteen years old, and as a result of all that activity, as a volunteer, I met other people throughout the region, throughout the New England region. And uh, one of them was a gentleman from Vermont named Bill Jacobus, who at the time worked for IBM in the Burlington area. And he was a volunteer national director of the organization, Trout Unlimited. And keep in mind that at that time, TU was very small. Um, And compared to, it had maybe a tenth as many Hmm. um, members as it does now. and uh, so we had these small chapters and we were, you know, doing our little thing. Anyway, I, uh, this man, Jacobus, uh, became a friend of mine. I was young, um, uh, 19, 20, 21 years old, going to school for journalism. And uh, I picked up the phone one day and he said that the, the then editor of Trout Magazine, uh, a, uh, a professor of botany of all things at Penn State University, older gentleman, was going to retire from his part-time job editing Trout Magazine, and nobody knew about it. Hmm. And it's that's another long uh, diversionary story, which I won't bore you with, but um, I essentially got this sort of insider tip that the job was going to become available, and I bought myself, scraped together a couple hundred bucks, which was a lot of money for me hmm. at the time, back in 1977, and bought myself a plane ticket and flew to Denver, where the board of directors of Trout Unlimited was meeting that following spring, and um, made a, uh, a presentation to the board, which included uh, 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 none other than the chairman of the board of American Motors at the hmm. at the time, wow. and you know, quite a quite an auspicious group. And here I was, basically this, you know. Um, this kid and uh, uh, the my, my friend Bill from Vermont had done a bit of spade work and lobbying for me and uh, and I walked out of there with the job wow. uh, miraculously and so there I was, um, um, you know, twenty two years old or whatever I was with the editor as the editor of Trout Magazine and. Um, oh, that's cool. What, what was your, and maybe your background up to that point? What, what had you been doing? Well, I went to school for journalism. Oh, yeah. College in Rhode Island so called Roger Williams. And I had done some right. I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I edited a small magazine. I mentioned when we spoke earlier, uh, that I mentioned, I, um, I had edited a small fly tying magazine based in Boston oh, okay. called United Fly Tires Roundtable. Uh, by today's standards, it was a very modest little little publication but that 
you know, that a lot that allowed me to, you know, turn from fledgling into a, an actual editor of a real publication. And, uh, that's how I uh, corresponded with people all around the world. Um, um, salmon fly tires in Scotland and, uh, you know, Western trout fly tires in Montana, you name it. Um, so I had, I had done that editing work and I had all, I'd also written for various publications in the New England region. Um, I was a regular columnist for a, a, a monthly newspaper called uh, Massachusetts Out of Doors, hmm. um, which was edited at one point um, <laughs> by, by, by a guy. I mean, I, I, words, I submitted my monthly column to this guy who a few years later uh, was the subject of an FBI sting huh. uh, and uh, w- went to the slammer for, um, for uh, trafficking in machine guns. Wow. Jeez. That's... I, had no, I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> I had my over and under that I used for, for ducks. Wow. That's funny. <laughs> Gosh. So yeah, I was just going to, you know, one of the questions I was thinking about mentioned here was just talking about, you know, maybe a turning point in your, your career as far as, you know, in fly fishing and in print media, but it sounds like maybe that was one of them walking in there as a 22 year old and with the, the audacity to, to jump in there and go for it. Was that, is that kind of the one? Oh, no, no doubt. I mean, I'm even, even to this day, when I look back on it, it's remarkable that that's awesome. Everything came together the way it did. I mean, the reality is that, that, um, you know, even going forward just a few years, and what Trout Magazine became, we won national awards and I was able to, the organization was growing. So I had a, mm. the budget to be able to hire the likes of Dave Whitlock and, oh, yeah. and Banky and these, and Ernie Schwiebert and so on. Um, but the reality is that, that I literally would not have been capable of editing the very magazine that I created. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, it, yeah, it's kind of funny how that, how life works sometimes. No, that is cool. That is, but I did, I, I will say one thing I did realize even at that young tender age, I did realize what a, what an extraordinary opportunity it was. And I wasn't about to let that slip through. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Well, we're, uh, yeah, we're (laughs) Tom. We're uh, definitely, uh, We've got a lot here, uh, not not too much time here. So I want to maybe do a little lightning round, maybe on the last, some questions here, um, just because we don't have a ton of time left. And, um, I had a few I want to try to get through just to make sure that I that I ask you. Does that sound okay? Maybe we can bust through a few. Yes, of course. If the, I don't know if your your listeners are snoozing by now or no, what. no, I, no, I don't think so. I, actually, I think uh, I know some of the listeners I have on here are you know new guides and people that want to get into the industry. So I think all these questions when they hear about you know how you got to where you are, are really cool because that's a that's a big question. So I don't know. Maybe do you have a tip for anybody that maybe wants to get into the you know whether it's fly fishing or the kind of print you know media. Yeah, or Matt, you know, you mean professionally? Yeah, you know, want to get in some become some, a stockbroker. Ah, so don't. Yeah, that's if you want to make money, don't don't get into <laughs> Go the fishing. fishing. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not <laughs> not entirely kidding, but um, actually, uh, I, I think probably today more than more than certainly when I was young there are any number of opportunities to become involved. I mean, we're doing it right here. Look what you're doing with yeah. your, 
uh, with your podcast, wonderful opportunities that never, uh, totally. n- never existed, uh, back when, when I was young. Um, I, I, I guess I would say, uh, um, and this is probably true with all professions really, um, uh, in the case of publishing and writing, you need to be a reader. Okay. Mm. Um, it, it always both amuses and amazes me when somebody comes to me and so I want to, uh, write a book about whatever it is, you know, whatever kind of hunting or fishing. And, and oftentimes I ask them, well, who's your favorite writer? Well, I really don't have one because I don't read. Well, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's yeah. like saying I want to become a, you know, right. I want to become a tarpon guide, but I've never caught one before. So you need to read if you're going to get into publishing and you want to write articles, you need to read. And and by the way, I would encourage um, individuals to read things other than fishing, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, uh, read biography, read, uh, you know, funny novels, read Carl Hyacin from Florida. Uh, um, And uh, and then, of course, this will come as no news to you or your friends, but you need to get out there and circulate, uh, Mm -hmm. because, uh, going to these various events, spay claves, fly tying events, you meet people and, uh, and, uh, you meet people in the industry and people who work for tackle companies and, and all that. So what's the jargon network, I guess. Networking. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, no good. So, and what's your, uh, your home, Steelhead River. Now, what do you consider kind of your home river you go? Well, through? sadly, um, I'm talking to you right now from essentially the banks of the Skykomish River, oh, Skykomish, wow. 15 minutes away. But I haven't fished there in several years because there aren't yeah. any fish, and that's one of the great tragedies of the Steelhead story. Uh, um, my, I suppose even though it's a long ways away, my quote unquote home river is probably the Dean in British Columbia. Mm. In fact, uh, mm. um, I'm in the, uh, just, uh, minutes before, uh, we get on the, the phone here. Uh, I'm, uh, corresponding back and forth with the helicopter company about oh, yeah. when we're going to go in and out. Sure. So, um, yeah, that's, it, it's one of the great rivers and, Fortunately, there's no hatchery fish in it, and it's still wild. And there's no dams, and uh, you might get eaten by a bear. Yeah, that's awesome. No, I uh, actually uh, Scott uh, Scott McGarva is. Uh, I have actually already uh, talked to him and interviewed him. He's going to be the next episode after this one that'll publish. So um, he broke down the Dean and you know a lot of the BC stuff. I've had a couple BC guests on, but yeah, I just want to put that note in there. I'll, I'll put a. Uh, have some information there, um, as well eventually. But, um, how about books and magazines? Do you, do you, um, you talking about reading? Do you, uh, what are some favorites of, of yours that you read other than your own stuff? Um, you mean sporting? Yeah. Well, I was fishing. thinking more, uh, yeah, I was thinking more fishing, but yeah, whatever, fishing, whatever. F- fishing. Um, sure. The, uh, the best writer, uh, uh, or I, let me qualify that to <laughs> pull that back a little bit. So I don't <laughs> yeah. anger a bunch of my friends, uh, but um, uh, I, one of my very favorite uh, fishing writers of all time. Um, in fact, I just uh, I just reread Trout Madness a few months ago. Mm. Is uh, Robert Traver, uh, the old judge from Michigan? Um, uh, pen name uh, that was his pen name. Mm-hmm. Uh, his actual name was John Volker. Uh, he was actually the. He eventually became the. Um, 
the chief justice of the Michigan State Supreme Court. But in 1960, he published a marvelous little collection of essays called Trout Madness. And uh, if, you, if you or any of your um, listeners have never read Robert Traver, uh, mm-hmm. in particular Trout Madness, I envy you because mm-hmm. you're in for a That's real awesome. treat. They're just delightful little stories about fishing in the upper peninsula of Michigan with this whole cast of characters and, uh, um, yeah, um, cool. grand, grand stuff. Um, uh, as far as, uh, um, as far as, uh, 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 magazines are concerned. Um, I, <laughs> when I was publishing magazines, I paid a little bit more attention, right. Um, but, uh, um, I tend to, I tend to like, uh, fishing magazines and sporting magazines generally that, that take chances, take artistic chances. Mm -hmm. Um, um, and, uh, I, I was in that, uh, regard, I was saddened that, uh, fly rod and reel, um, went away, uh, a couple of years ago that I thought that, uh, Hmm. Uh, that that magazine for many, many years took those kinds of artistic chances. And um, um, I'm not, I, I don't think it would be fair for me to mention several that I think are exceptional now, but there are yeah. several good ones. And uh, I, I like, I like real writing. I like, um, um, I like the great photos that, I mean, there, there've never been such, yeah. uh, such photos as now appear in these magazines, uh, man. I mean, I look back on some of my old, magazines not even talking about trout i mean just you know just from 20 years ago and when we were you know still i would come home from trips with a bag full of hmm. ectochrome slide film fujichrome slide film and you know we'd scan the slides and those are the photos we run i mean these digital this digital stuff that people are coming up with now even with cell phones oh yeah They're powerful. Uh, it's, it's just extraordinary yeah yeah the iphone is definitely one of the well, I won't say the best cameras out there, but it's definitely one of the most used cameras for sure. Um, no, that's cool. In the uh, the Trout Madness, I'm I'm excited about that. I'll, I'll uh, provide a link to to this and a lot of these other uh, resources you mentioned in the show notes. Again, that's going to be at wetflyswing.com slash one eight. Um, so hopefully we can get these uh, people if they want to just get direct links to some of this stuff where I can do it. Um, now, also as far as we've got a little bit of time here, I wanted to just touch on a couple of big things here as far as where print media is going uh, you know i always love to ask this question because you're right in the middle of it do you have any any idea or thinking of where that might be going the next 10 to 20 years well, <laughs> yeah uh, um, <laughs> that and, and give me the uh the long lost key to bernie madoff's vault. <laughs> that's uh, right is it that hard <laughs> um, yeah I, I uh um i'm probably about the last person to to ask that question oh yeah a uh, clear i mean clearly um print has diminished um that's one of the reasons why some of these magazines are are uh, are going away or they're 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 changing um Books will always be with us. Um, There will always be people who cherish books as collector's items um, and as inspiration. Um, I mean, the way I look at it, um, humans are 
are essentially storytellers. I mean, if you think about it, what were the first stories we told? They were about fishing and hunting yeah. on the caves in Europe. Um, we came back from, we Homo sapiens and before Neanderthals came back with stories of the chase. And that, I think it's, it's telling that, um, that, uh, and fascinating that one of the first impulses that, that we had, um, other than butchering the game or the fish and eating it, of course, for sustenance and nourishment was to tell these stories. And, and there was this, uh, evidently, uh, a uh, compulsion to tell them not just to people around the campfire, but for posterity, uh, for generations uh, to come. And by the same token, I think that quality literature um, uh, on fishing and hunting um, that's meant to last, and and I, I admit somewhat proudly that I consider the books that we produce among those, um, we want people to know these stories. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. when Sean Gallagher and I interviewed uh, uh, George McLeod, inventor of the, the wet cell fly line, and Harry Lemire, great pioneering steelhead fly tire for his uh, wild steelhead uh, two-volume set, um, we, we got them to say things that maybe they wouldn't have said. They certainly weren't going to sit down and write those stories themselves, but mm -hmm. we captured these marvelous long oral histories um, that um, only they could tell. Uh, and that I think people like you and me and your listeners uh, should know. Yeah. Um, th this is part of our legacy. This is who we are. And, uh, you know, there may be some anglers who think that they just – sort of showed up on the riverbank and, uh, and invented all this. But guess what? <laughs> there are a lot of people before us who did yep. much the same thing. For sure. For sure. No, I, I appreciate you, uh, you know, coming on here today to talk about this because I think this is, yeah, it's exactly what I'm trying to do. I mean, I'm not writing anything here really, so to, you know, to speak. But you know, as far as audio version, I mean, connecting the dots and what you've done today is just, you know, helping me, tell some stories and you know i think a lot of people that probably haven't heard of some of the the, <laughs> the folks you've talked about today are going to get a lot of a lot of knowledge here so that's really cool um a couple of final ones or at least one more final one and maybe we've covered this already but um where does your passion for steelhead come from kind of a little a little play on words there but have we kind of covered where it kind of, do you have anything anything else um, you share? well i i um it, 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 initially uh my interest in anadromous fish was with atlantic salmon um, right. but, but then I, uh, um, uh, I, uh, I, I began reading about steelhead and of course travel with my position with trout magazine, I was able to travel around the Northwest and, and, um, and, and catch them and see them and hold them in my hands and all that. So I, I immediately became entranced with fish and, uh, and, uh, with, with that species steelhead and, so from a pretty, pretty early age, I kind of linked the two as being very similar fish and having the same kind of romantic life histories going out into the ocean and coming back and all wondering, I mean, now we kind of know the same way they migrate, the same way birds migrate. Um, but um, using uh, electro 
uh, yep. uh, magnetic, but but it it all it all just seems so mysterious and and fascinating that these creatures would go out to sea and roam around out there for you know hmm. a year, two years, three years, and somehow make their way back to um, their native rivers and in some cases the actual spawning gravel where they were yeah. hatched uh, y- years earlier. So. Um, I think that the migratory nature of salmon and steelhead uh, and other fish as well um, uh, intrigues me a great deal and kind of keeps me keeps me casting over mm-hmm. what are sadly yeah. empty empty pools these days, um, hoping that uh, one will come back and bite my fly. Yeah, no, I hear you. All right. Well, that's that's about all I have uh, for you here, Tom. Maybe you can talk a little more about um, just what you have going. Maybe the next six months, you know, with your um, with your company or anything else you want to talk about that we can look forward to. Sure. Uh, we actually have uh, more books uh, more books underway than than we ever have. Um, they are mostly hunting books, um, but I'll mention them anyway because some of your Readers may be hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, my second volume of Turkey Men um, is coming out here in another month. I mentioned that. Um, uh, we then get into a whole series um, of um, books about women fishing and hunting. Um, we, have a, uh, we have a book called 50 Women Who Fish, hmm. um, which... Uh, um, is a series of um, very interesting, colorful profiles um, of ladies of all ages, um, all across North America, who fish for everything from blue marlin to trout to smallmouth bass and, yes, steelhead. Mm-hmm. And there are several Northwesterners uh, women in the book. I won't mention who they are. You'll have to find that out for yourself. Cool. But uh, uh, that's gonna that's an exciting project, and uh, um, I've been working on a. The author is from Florida. I've been working with him for a couple of years now on this project, um, um, and that'll be out sometime this summer. There, there'll be a sort of a companion volume to that um, called "Why Women Hunt," and that that's a s- series of. Nice smaller series of profiles but more or less the same thing it, it, it these aren't how-to books they are uh uh they're human interest stories they're 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 narratives uh and uh uh there's some pretty amazing people out there who fish and hunt and uh that's one of the things that that i've always enjoyed personally and we try to capture in our in our hardcover books um, and then finally, this fall, we've got two additional hunting books coming out. Uh, one is called uh, Grouse and Woodcock by a uh, just a spectacular wildlife photographer from Pennsylvania called Tim Flanagan, former game warden there, hmm. um, and uh, filled with, again, stories of a lifetime of chasing grouse and woodcock with his remarkable uh, close-up bird photography how on earth he gets a grouse to stand still i (laughs) will never know and then we also have a a book coming out uh in september 
called Pheasant Dogs huh. uh, by a man uh, from uh, um, from uh, Minnesota uh, named uh, uh, Keith Crowley. Uh, I should have mentioned also the uh, the the authors of the women's book are Steve Cantner from Florida and mm-hmm. uh, Christine Houtman from Minnesota, and then uh, as I said. Uh, uh, Keith Crowley from Minnesota, another wonderful photographer, is putting together a, a whole book of interviews with um, with wonderful, colorful uh, dog trainers and hunters from uh, the Great Plains and the Upper Midwest. He spent several months traveling all around, uh, interviewing uh, these individuals, both men and women, who um, love pheasant dogs and uh he's, he just came up with some marvelous photos and stories and so nice. that's where we're going there uh, on a fishing note uh because i know most of your uh, mm-hmm. listeners are are uh fishers yep. we have two books coming out next year next spring um possibly early summer i don't know but a year from now so look for the tr- the third stool in the trilogy we have a passion for tarp and a passion for permit oh yeah we're we're going to come out with a passion for bonefish, uh, uh, written by uh, a man named uh, Ian Ian Davis from Bozeman, Montana, and then a book uh, on the Great River, the Great Trout Rivers of Montana, uh, by uh, my old colleague John Van Vliet, who now works mm. for Scientific Anglers. He also is in Bozeman, so. Uh, both of these authors give me an excuse to drive over there this yeah. summer. Nice. Yeah, there's uh, nothing wrong with hitting Montana. That's for sure. Great. Well, that's uh, I appreciate you providing all those uh, that, that information. I'll definitely link out um, to wherever I can to those in the show notes. And, um, yeah, so where else, uh, just as far as if people want to get a hold of you, if they have questions, where would be the best place? The uh, best thing is just go right to our website, wildriverpress.com. Um, we have several satellite sites as well. For example, we have one for the new, for both of the fly tying series. We have topsaltwaterflies.com and tyingsteelheadflieswithstyle.com. Oh, cool. Go to each of these sites. You can, you'll get a taste of what the books look like and what they're about, etc. But, uh, I'm easy to get to, um, um, just stay away from social media. Don't (laughs) Don't say mean things about me. That's right. No, I think I think we're good there. We're uh, I've got a pretty uh, a pretty easygoing uh, community here, so I think I think we're all good. But yeah, Tom, I uh, just wanted to thank you again for coming on, and we spent a little bit of extra time here digging into some of this stuff. But I think that you know what you covered today is a lot of people are going to love this because you hit on the history and you hit on a lot of uh, topics that I've been wanting to cover. So uh, just want to thank you again for coming on. You're entirely welcome. Thank you very much for the opportunity. You bet. We'll talk to you soon. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 18. That's the numbers, 1-8. Please go to wetflyswing.com slash community to connect with the growing Facebook group where we are continuing some of these stories. I wanted to remind you to hit subscribe on iTunes if you get a chance. I'm not really sure what (laughs) this helps, but I think it should help us maybe reach a few more people and help some others get into uh, some more fish. Thanks again for stopping by the show and uh, hope to see you soon and maybe talk to you online or on the river. Later. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. 
And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.